Hi everyone, it's Landon. And it's Monique. And we are coming to you on Zoom again. Still, there's <laughs> still COVID is still around. There's still a pandemic thing going on that I heard about. And so Monique and I have not physically seen each other for, I don't know, almost a year. It seems like five minutes. Um, <laughs> but we are coming to you again on Zoom today and we have a special guest as we've been doing a lot during our Zoom podcasts. Uh, and Monique, I will let you introduce her. Well, I'm, I'm going to introduce Dr. Jane Buxton and I'm sure that I will miss a lot of what she does, but um, we are very happy to have Dr. Jane Buxton here who is a epidemiologist at BCCDC specializing in the narcotic overdose crisis here in British Columbia. Um, and I'm going to let her actually uh, introduce herself and, and give us several of her other titles that um, I'm sure that I will forget. So Dr. Jane Buxton, welcome. Thank you. Thank you both for that warm welcome. And my official title is Medical Lead for Harm Reduction at the BC Centre for Disease Control, which means I oversee the harm reduction program. Um, and really, I'd like to share what harm reduction means to me. I think people have different ideas and often it's thought of as just handing out needles, but really harm reduction is an approach. It's a paradigm. It's, it's how a way of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, and the main thing is it treats people with respect. It acknowledges that folks will be using substances and that um, abstinence isn't the only goal of harm reduction. Mm -hmm. And substance use is a journey and it's not a straight line from starting to start to finish. So harm reduction meets people where they're at, where they are in their journey and helps them to be as give tools and knowledge um, and interventions to help people be as safe as they can for themselves, for their community and for their loved ones. And I often give an example like, you know, we don't say you must stop using drugs before we'll see you. We don't say you've got to lose weight before we'll treat your diabetes. And we don't say you've got to stop smoking before we'll treat your pneumonia. So I think it's a compassionate, respectful way, human rights approach. So I just wanted to get that out because I think everybody has a different idea what harm reduction means to them. So that that's my take on it. Um, and that's, as you can tell, I'm passionate about it. I, I, I thank you for that. And I think uh, one thing that resonated with me that you just said is about meeting people where they're at. And I know in, in some of the work I uh, did in the, in the downtown east side of, of Vancouver with a lot of people who were addicted to opioids, that, that's a, an important concept in my mind. And especially as emergency department practitioners, I think we're so in the business of fixing things that sometimes when someone comes in and they're at triage, we're instantly in that mode of fixing things and telling people what they shouldn't be doing. And you shouldn't have, you, you know, injected drugs and you shouldn't have ridden your bike without a helmet and you shouldn't have, and that that's not really meeting them where they're at right now, where mm -hmm. they're at is they're in our emergency department. They feel like crap and telling them they shouldn't be injecting um, opioids isn't probably the right time to do that. And so I, I really, that resonated with me when you said meeting people with where they're at and always maybe making that conscious effort of pausing for a moment and going, okay, where is this person at right now? 
And is this an appropriate conversation to open up at triage when there's 300 other patients in the waiting room? Or is this something we could do later or not at all on this visit? Yes, I mean, I, it's, it, it's understanding people and where they are at that time and what are the needs at that time. There's not gonna be a magic answer for everyone in that one encounter. Um, it's an opportunity to develop trust so that folks will come back, folks will seek other um, treatment. But if, if they feel potentially um, they're stigmatized or they're uncomfortable, people are gonna resist coming. Um, and it's so important just to treat people like humans. I mean, that's really, and it, it's so difficult when we're busy, we're doing so many other things and there's different priorities and then we get COVID. But just to try and understand where that person is at that time and what we can do to help at that particular time. I, th I think, you know, you're, you're right. I, in our careers, you know, as a physician, I spent many years as a family doctor. You want to help people. You, you feel you should have the answer for people. But often it's taken many years and potentially much trauma or other things that we can't see um, and just to be able to treat people with respect keep in mind cultural safety trauma info informed care are all things that we can all do just to make somebody feel comfortable and be willing to share what their real issue is you know back in the day i think that uh, landon used to say something to me or say to people that people don't People aren't born and say, I want to grow up to be a person with a addiction. That's mm -hmm. not what they're born to. And so I often think when I'm caring for patients, that's somebody's mother or child or something. And through whatever means they've ended up in this situation. And I don't want to make the situation worse than it is. And I recently had a young fellow who was um, addicted to alcohol and he was really struggling and uh, we were offering him some help and could, could we help you? Could we do this? Could we get the social worker? And he started to cry. He was young, he was like 22 or something. And he goes, every time I come, you guys are so great and you offer me help and I go and then I feel really good. And then I, I feel like I disappoint you guys again because I come back and it's the same thing over again. And I said, listen, if you weren't trying, you wouldn't be failing. So each time you come and you try, that means, that that's one more time that you're trying and it's okay. I don't care if you come back a hundred times and you fail a hundred times, we're gonna help you every single time because that just means that you're trying and it's it's okay, it's okay. So I, I agree with all of you. We can see that all of us are very, very compassionate and, and passionate about harm reduction and that there's a complexity around there. Mm -hmm. Jane, could you maybe help us to understand where we were at pre-COVID with um, harm reduction, with the situation, with the narcotic crisis. And when would we, when would we say that it probably was at its, I don't even know if, it, if, if there's a, a time that it hasn't been at its height, but maybe the public awareness of the situation, was it about five years ago, would you say, Jane? Yeah, so, I mean, there's lots of, obviously it's very complex as to why yeah. something happened. and you know, we have to always bear in mind, you know, social determinants of health that, you know, there are people and who are using substances for many, many reasons. 
But another reason obviously was that um, there was overprescribing of opioids. So that led to a number of people becoming, um, having a substance use disorder. And then we stopped, um, OxyContin was stopped being available back in 2012. Uh, and all these things were happening and compounding the fact that really we don't care for our most marginalized populations. What we did see was this sudden increase at the end of 2016. You may remember that the public health emergency was declared earlier in 2016, and we'd kind of seen a, a, a slight increase over time. Um, and a lot of that was associated with fentanyl appearing on the scene um, because that was so toxic um, and people weren't aware that was what they, they were taking. End of 2016 was really, November, December was really quite a distressing time. Mm -hmm. And then it just kept on. 2017, 2018, it kept at this really high level. But in 2019, in the first couple of months of 2020, with all these additional, you know, take-home naloxone was flying out the doors. We had overdose prevention sites. We had increasing in overdose agonist therapy that we actually saw in 2019, early 2020, that the numbers had leveled off. It was still unacceptable. It was still far too high, but they had come down somewhat. And then COVID happened, and then we just saw the overdose deaths skyrocket again. And in fact, in kind of May, June, July, we were seeing numbers that we'd never seen before in a month with COVID arriving. So we'd gone from this, you know, going up, 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 and then we kind of settled down a bit, but it was still really high compared to what we used to see. And then it just rocketed again once COVID came in. So what, what changed with COVID? Like, what's the, from an epidemiological perspective, how did those intersect and, mm -hmm. and in what way? And is there something that, that we can do to fix that? I know that's a huge answer, <laughs> fix the opioid problem. But, but I, I mean, sort of more local individual practitioner, is there uh, an intersection of those two that you, could rec that you recognize and can intervene with at the local level? Or is this all very international uh, <laughs> implications kind of thing? No, I mean, and certainly I think, you know, we're all aware that this is a North American, the fentanyl is a North American thing. You're not seeing it in Australia or in Europe um, to the same degree. And you're right, it's kind of colliding the two public health um, crises that the um, COVID is really affecting those that are um, already marginalised at a higher rate um, and with great difficulty than, than was seen before. So lots of, we call it multifactorial, but the drugs became more toxic. Uh, we closed our borders, the import export, what was being avail made available, often coming um, according to our police colleagues from China, the actual borders were shut down to some degree. Therefore, there was a shortage. Therefore, prices went up. When prices go up, additional things are added to the drugs so that people can have um, the effect that they're looking for, that they're needing. Um, so the drugs became more toxic. There was 
potentially we've seen overdose deaths, which have much higher rates, uh, higher amounts of fentanyl in. Um, we don't know whether that's because people are using more or whether the drug itself is more toxic. We've seen, um, you know, sort of more people are using alone. Um, some of what happened was that we, because of social distancing, physical distancing, we reduced the capacity of some sites. We reduced the, um, we, we closed a few sites of where people could use in an observed manner. We've reopened that. Um, that isn't an issue now, but people are still conscious of trying to physically distance. The other thing is people are feeling really disconnected. They're isolated. You can't just go to a drop-in anymore. The food lineups you may have gone before or places you'd socialized before aren't necessarily available now. You know, and, and people who are homeless have increased risks of getting infected, you know, that aren't able to wash their hands. I mean, if you think about the things that we tell everybody to do with COVID, it's wash your hands and keep your distance. Well, yeah. if you don't have somewhere that you can actually stay in on your own, that makes it very difficult. If you don't have resources, don't have running water, you don't have things that are available, it can make it hard. And I think this, the social disconnection is really, really, has a huge effect on people. I mean, you're not even seeing your physician face to face. You may be phoning them. Um, it may make it easier in some ways to get substances, but it, it's really to get your prescriptions, but it, it's not really, really helping. Um, so people are just disconnected, lonely, isolated, potentially maybe using more, maybe using more alone. And when you're using, the substances are so toxic. We're seeing higher doses of fentanyl. We're seeing benzos added to the fentanyl, whether it's to have that longer effect like heroin would have, or whether it's so that people don't realize that there's not much active ingredient. You know, there's so many complex issues going on um, in people's lives. And this has just really compounded it. So that's so interesting that you mentioned that, Jane, because I didn't even, I think I might've thought about it subconsciously, but I didn't articulate it because a lot of us have stayed connected um, despite the fact that we're physically distanced by internet, by Zoom, by, they don't even have that. A lot of them don't have a telephone. A lot of them don't have that ability. So I didn't even really think about that, right? Even the ability to call, a lot of them don't have phone uh, telephones at, at all, right? And so very difficult for us to connect with them Anyways, the other thing that I found kind of interesting, and I don't know if we actually did any stats on this, because initially, certainly in the hospital, I don't have any kind of formal data. In the hospital, we weren't seeing uh, the marginalized population at the beginning coming in with COVID. We certainly saw them dying of overdoses and other issues, but they certainly weren't coming in with COVID-related pneumonias or anything like that which I found a bit odd um, initially, but you know, certainly that ramped up from their um, overdose deaths, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but I didn't, we didn't certainly see them coming in with COVID type illnesses. Was that something that you noticed as well, Jane? Yeah, most definitely. And I, I think there's been so much work done. I think a lot of people who, um, you know, with lived and living experience and substance use really feel they've 
been left out in the cold. It's been four and a half years since the overdose crisis was declared. And then you see so much money, time, energy on COVID. And obviously we all understand why that's important. But there's been a huge amount of work to try and support people. And it's almost been hidden through our governments, through our municipalities, um, you know, making sure that if somebody is exposed or does have COVID, that even if they are, you know, living uh, in, an, in a tent or somewhere like that, there's somewhere that, that they can go to, to isolate, to be safe. And that's the other thing that happened. Uh, I think we're all aware of the decampments, that there were encampments in different places and accommodation was found. And yes, we've had tent cities spring up elsewhere, but there's a huge amount of effort to try and help people find secure housing. Um, And that has been a lot of work that that has gone on there and has really helped many. And I think all these things that were happening and in Vancouver, you had your water supplies and there was hand washing stations and lots of work going on um, that I think there was a huge amount people were aware people were trying to make sure that people were supported but that doesn't really necessarily help people feel connected Um, and if you're in despair and you're isolated then you know potentially people were using in a more unsafe manner could we have done something more jane so you mentioned that we did do things like um you know try to find housing uh water stations that sort of thing for those who were maybe um, disenfranchised and everything mm-hmm. like that. But it doesn't really address the fact that, as you mentioned, there was all these multifactorial issues about drug supply. Could we have done better to make over that drug supply during the time of COVID to ensure that they were getting safe drugs? Yeah. Maybe I mean, that's a bit controversial. <laughs> so, you know, I, th- I think you know, from one perspective is why do we wait until COVID happens before we try and start supporting people? I mean, it really, this is an issue that's been going on for a long time. People have been crying out for help and it it just hasn't happened. And, you know, we know there's huge amounts of stigma and and things are out as well. Um, What was brought in with, with COVID again, was to help people avoid withdrawal if they were going to be isolating or in quarantine. And that was the risk mitigation guidance. And that was developed with um, through Vancouver Coastal and the BC Centre for Substance Use and also with ministry support, is making sure that people had substances to avoid that withdrawal. So not safer supply, which is what people would like to have the effect that they um, are looking for, but this was to reduce that withdrawal. So that was introduced, um, but it hasn't been, you know, the the uptake hasn't been universal. Um, It's obviously controversial with some, some physicians around prescribing and you know, some of the things that are happening now is around not just nurse practitioners, but other nurses being able to, to prescribe potentially. You know, I think we have to think about why people are using. It's mm-hmm. not to get high for a lot of people. It's to actually be able to exist. It's mm-hmm. to be able to get out of bed in the morning, to avoid those withdrawal symptoms, which are just absolutely horrific. Mm-hmm. And I think 
you know, perhaps the, not in the medical or nursing field, but I, I think in a public discourse, there's often this thought that people will use substances because they want to get high. It's mm -hmm. actually often, it's a survival. It's mm -hmm. to be able to function. And that's why it's important that we can give people substances to help them just to be able to get out of bed or to, to be able to function. I think that's really important. And I think it's a different way of looking at things, you know, rather than you want this for this particular reason, no, you can't. It's, okay, why are people needing to use? And often it's to get people, and if we can get people not having to go and find um, through the illicit market, if they can have substances through prescription so we know exactly what they're using, that they don't aren't at risk of some of these extremely toxic substances, because every time you buy something on the street, you don't know what's in there. Mm -hmm. You know, we've tried to help people with, you know, there's been introduction of drug checking at some of the OPS sites. You know, we, we try and um, let people know if there's something untoward. We've increased the opioid agonist therapy with the Suboxone being first line. And as you know, you know, there's in the emergency department, there's Suboxone to go or there's, you know, microdosing. So there's lots of ways that people are trying to help introduce people to an alternative to that toxic supply, but it's not for everyone. Mm -hmm. So I guess, so I have a question then, and this involves suspending reality a little bit because we... <laughs> We obviously live in, well, and we have listeners around the world who live in various cultural and political climates. Mm -hmm. But if we suspend reality and, and live in an in a ultimate world, what would this look like as far as supporting these people? And, and you know, the word safe supply comes up. And, and can you, you know, in a perfect world where every law just supports what the best public health approach is, um, what, what is what is this perfect world that we're looking for to support these people? I think to have a regulated supply, to have the substances that gives the effect that the people, people are looking for, that it's, um, you know, we've had, as you know, the studies, the Salome study and the Naomi study where, you know, people have been prescribed heroin or they've been prescribed um, injectable hydromorphone and, they, the doses haven't increased. They've found that level. They've found stability. We know it works. Um, therefore, making some of these substances, making substances available. I think the other thing that we are seeing, which is, you know, has been a change over the last couple of years, is that there's more people smoking drugs than there are in injecting now. So more people would be smoking their heroin or fentanyl than actually injecting. And often this is a way of trying to reduce the harms. It's people trying to look after themselves. But, you know, giving people oral dilaudid, it's not really smokable. Um, there are risks of injecting. So making sure that what we have, as far as substances are concerned, is the type of substance, but also um, in the form that can be used in the manner in which people want to use so just having that regulated supply that being said you know we've seen stimulants stimulant crystal meth use has skyrocketed along with this opioid crisis that we're seeing and i think we've kind of not let recognize that to the same degree 
the actual number of folks who are using methamphetamine has increased dramatically, and hence so has polysubstance use. Now, we need to get to the bottom of why are people using the different substances? Is it because this is what's available? You know, often it's not a choice. It's what is there available and people will use that. Thank, thank you for that. And, and to bring it back to a bit of reality and not the perfect world that I've built, I've sort of heard, maybe accurately or inaccurately, of certain countries that already do this. Do you know of any countries that already sort of provide a supply and what the uh, outcomes are from that? Are they successful or are they still in the same boat that we are? And, and if you have a comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, if people are prescribed diacetomorphin heroin, then as I said, you're, it changes one's life totally that you're not having to seek the funds to purchase, that it is available, you know what it, that it's safe. And, you know, as a family doc in the UK, I mean, that was many moons ago, we were able to prescribe um, diacetylmorphine. And the, my patients as a GP were, you know, having full-time jobs, um, you know, because they were able to, to function um, because it was available. So I, th I think there's examples of where it is. And so many of these, there's a lot of politics involved with anything when we talk about substance use and there's a lot of ideology. And unfortunately, things change depending on governments. And I think we've seen that certainly here with regards to support for supervised consumption um, over time right. uh, and what happens. So, you know, sometimes policies are introduced, but then sometimes there is some backtracking. I mean. People will often talk about Portugal um, because they have the, de what the, the decriminalization. And there's been a lot of talk about decriminalization here in Canada. Um, you're probably aware that our provincial health officer um, came out with a document around um, the need to decriminalize. We've heard from the, um, uh, the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs, they support decriminalization. And there's also been another, you know, sort of push to say, don't arrest people for simple possession. Um, this is at the federal level, you know, people need not to be arrested and put in jail for possession. We need to be helping folks as well in different ways. So I think there's a number of steps. I think it's going to be hard to come out with, you know, having a, a national standard for some of these substances and uh, as you're aware a lot of the the law around drug use and um, criminalization of drugs comes at the federal level mm -hmm. rather than it being provincial and you know we've heard just recently our our mayor in Vancouver saying hey we want decriminalization in Vancouver and it, it's this kind of situation where you know the laws are not that simple and easy, easy. <laughs> yeah i mean nothing's easy but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do we shouldn't try and i think it, I, people often get frustrated around you know we haven't come anywhere and it's four and a half years and we're still where we are but actually when you look we've got overdose prevention sites and supervised consumption sites in all the health authorities 
the, um, you know, we have inhalation sites as well as sites where people can inject. I mentioned how much we've increased the overdose, I mean, the um, opioid agonist therapy availability. And then we've had the risk mitigation guidance. So, you know, it's, we should be doing more. We've still got toxic drugs out there. People are dying. It, whilst we've got, whilst people are being forced to use the toxic drugs, people are going to die. Yeah. So, you know, that's the, the basic message. I think, uh, I think it's good. oh, sorry, go ahead, Landon. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, a couple other things that, you know, our province has done that are interesting to me. One is when is the widespread availability of naloxone. Uh, yeah. Not that, not that that should be the backup plan, but it is a backup plan. And the, the, the deregulation may not be the right word for that, but the ability for a bystander to get some and give an IM injection where, you know, before all of this, that would have been a protected skill as, as, a, as a health provider. I also saw an interesting, uh, I live in a, a smaller community north of Vancouver uh, called Squamish. And, and uh, in our bus shelters, there's an ad for an app that you, uh, if you are using a loan, you turn this app on. And if you don't turn it off within a certain amount of minutes, it, auto, it automatically dials 911 and plays a recorded message of your location. I think it was called Lifeguard or, or something yeah. like that. And, and, and it was fascinating to me that there's these, these things out there and, and encouraging people to use them or just even being aware as a healthcare provider of that. And, and so I think there's, there's all these things now. And, and that, you know, that was not there five years ago at all. That's yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, no, that, that's for sure. And I think um, naloxone is very dear to my heart because um, we implemented that back in 2012. And I am just so grateful that that was done before the crisis occurred. So we were all ready to ramp up. And, you know, that really was, <laughs> I used to go to conferences. You remember those days when you used to occasionally go to conferences? <laughs> um, you know, I had colleagues in the US saying, hey, you've got a supervised consumption site in Vancouver. Why haven't you got take home naloxone? Because they had in the States. And then having people with lived experience coming to me and saying, we need to have naloxone. We need to be able to not stand by and see somebody in distress and have to call an ambulance and potentially have police there. Um, and those were the kind of things that really pushed to, to getting take home naloxone. And as you said, it really has ramped up incredibly when um, and we saw the demand increase as overdoses were increasing. And then when it became um, unscheduled, which meant that not just people who are at risk of an overdose could have naloxone kit, but somebody who was at risk of witnessing an overdose could, that really opened up the doors. And it meant we didn't have to have prescribing, we didn't have to have a physician or a nurse who handed the kit over, we didn't have to have kit numbers and collect names, it just meant it could get out there. And of course, it's such a safe drug, you know, it, it really, you know, it's, it really should be, whoever needs it should have it. So I think, you know, that's something that it's probably, you know, one of one of my proudest moments of my career was actually, you know, saying, yes, we'll we'll start this program, getting permission to and saying, well, yeah, probably 20,000 a year. That's the number of kits that we'll we'll need. 
um, just to replenish the kits. And of course, yeah, I think it was July this year, we handed out, we sent out 29,000 in a month. Um, so wow. don't trust me in what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just humbled that the, the person who uh, decided to do this is sitting on our Zoom call right now. <laughs> no, but but it, it, it was a no brainer at the time. Um, and I think, you know, the advocacy that people with lived experience have and saying, this is what we need. Yeah. And we have to listen because they are the experts. We can't say, this is what you need. We're going to implement this. No, we need to work with folks to say what's acceptable, you know, what does it look like, all those kind of things. But to get back to your lifeguard app, um, there's a couple of apps uh, on the phone. Uh, one is more of um, contacting somebody who will be with you on the phone whilst you are using substances, uh, making sure you're okay. The other one is the lifeguard app, which is um, you register for it and then you um, say when you're about to use, and as you said, if it go, if you don't respond and the phone will start beeping and getting louder and flashing and vibrating, and if you don't cancel it, then they will um, send an ambulance. It doesn't actually go through the 911 system. Um, it's a different system. So there's no collection of somebody's personal information. And that's always a concern, I think, for folks is that they don't want everybody to know. Um, sometimes they're using alone because they're not wanting others to know that they're using. So again, it's, a, it, it's great. We just need to have as many different things and different ways of supporting people to be yeah. safe until we have a supply that isn't toxic we want people to be um to be able to use safely and just another bit about using alone it's it's interesting because i think we often assume people use alone because they are um hiding their use they don't want their family members to use um but we did we do an annual survey at harm reduction distribution sites and what we found was that the main reason that people used alone was for comfort. And, you know, because to be in your own home, to use, to be on your bed, to have your music, not to be out um, with lots of people around, not to have to be sharing. There were, you know, convenience and comfort was that main reason. But these are folks who were using the harm reduction distribution sites anyway, so were connected to services. So um, there are obviously people who would use alone because they're hiding their use. So something like lifeguard really is helpful because they can use and somebody can oversee. And if it alarm goes off, then helps on its way. Of course, it's, so yeah. it's so interesting, Jane, because you use the word common sense. And um, I guess in my head, I often really divide up this whole personal opinion that we have or judgment that anybody has or any politics around it. Mm -hmm. It just makes sense. It makes sense to me that we should be managing harm while we sort out why this is happening. We still need to just deal with what we have at hand. And I think all that wasted money in things like, you know, criminalizing and all of that, all that money that we're using there could actually be used to stop people from dying and then figure out why they're using, 
what is happening in society that is creating this situation where we have folks who are ending up in these situations that mm -hmm. are, you know, it just, to me, it just makes sense. It's such a common sense approach and yet it gets all caught up in people's judgments and how do I feel and what do I believe? It was kind of like that whole thing where I remember that schools would would be angry because people were putting condoms in school because you know people who weren't going to have sex all of a sudden because there's condoms we're going to go and have sex and I would be like why is that in your head it just to me it's just such a common sense approach the other thing to me that I think is an issue as a healthcare person in the emergency department and where I think we have failed perhaps or there's a gap in education for nurses and physicians, I think, especially in the emergency department, I can only speak for myself, that we don't, we don't feel comfortable with how much drug is needed. And therefore we don't know how best to treat them. And my, my go-to usually is to patients, okay, I need you to stay because this is my concern, but I understand that you need something. I don't know how much you need, tell me how much you need and I will give it to you because I don't know equivalency doses. I don't know what's going to help them not go into withdrawal <laughs> while they're waiting for necessary treatment. And I think that there's a gap in nursing and, and medical education around um, drug dependency uh, and not quick access uh, in emergency departments to, uh, to support us to figure this out for uh, patients while they're in eMERGE. I think that's a huge gap. Yeah, I mean, and I, uh, I mean, I'm in a very privileged position because I work with people with lived experience, not in that acute situation, but in a more research environment. And, you know, having been um, involved in focus groups with people with lived and living experience and hearing the stories around you know, you can go in with a broken arm and I don't get off with anything because I'm on methadone. Mm -hmm. um, and that lack of compassion, understanding what is it that somebody needs um, really strikes home. And it's not surprising that people feel that they've been failed because of the way things are. And that's not everybody. I mean, we often hear stories of fabulous you know, the nurse in Emerge made all the difference too because they did something. And um, similarly, a family doc who just listened and shows some compassion can make all that difference. And those are the stories that it's, it's so gratifying to hear. But we do hear time and time again that people are denied uh, pain medication because they are known as being using substances. And, you know, even somebody... Well, especially somebody on methadone because they'll check and say oh you're on methadone that means and you know and often people don't want necessarily to have they're trying to avoid it but if somebody's in pain they need that pain managed one way or another yeah and I did that and I think that that's I know that when um we were talking before we started the podcast because um Landon was involved uh we have a medical mobile unit at the, at mm -hmm. the height of some of the narcotic overdoses, um, it, it was dispatched to the downtown east side and it was staffed by emerged, dis, uh, emerged nurses, emerged physicians, but also, oh gosh, physicians. Outreach, outreach workers, uh, addictions medicine physicians. Addiction medicine yeah. doctors, right? 
And I know that a lot of our eMERGE physicians and nurses said having an addiction specialist mm -hmm. there was so beneficial to support their learning and also to support the care for those patients that I almost feel like that's what we need in some acute facilities is to have someone there as addiction specialists to be able to come down to help us navigate that particular situation mm -hmm. where we have someone who's in acute pain who does have a drug dependency and how do I, how do I support them um, through that with not having all that information. And, and we're not great at that. We don't have the ability to say, hey, come down. I got, you know, this is an emergency. It's a code addiction. Come on down so we can kind of yeah. sort it out, which would be so helpful. Um, and it would be such a patient-centered um, situation. And it would so support me, mm -hmm. um, you know, as the clinician trying to provide the care uh, that meets that patient's needs, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, there is rapid access um, to addiction um, consultations and things now. And certainly wherever you are in the province, you can, a physician can phone for advice. And so, you know, again, we've come a long way. Um, the other thing that I would suggest is that um, when somebody's in that situation, when they're perhaps in pain, they're in the emergency department, they've you know, perhaps got an infection or something, is actually having a peer support person. Um, in some places there are peer navigators. Um, that, so somebody who has that lived experience who can help somebody navigate through the system. Um, you know, they can be the one that makes sure that they get their uh, take home naloxone training and they get their kit. You know, they can be there and say, this is, you know, the way to navigate to social services. I mean, there isn't enough staff of all these different, you know, if to have real patient centered care, you really need to have, you know, that the social worker as well as outreach, as well as the addictions, as you know, that there's such a, a myriad, but sometimes actually having a, a peer who has had that experience can help that work, help move forward and then support somebody when they leave. Yeah. Um, just to keep people connected. The other well, thing I, just, I was just going to mention is that um, also over the last couple of months, um, episodic overdose prevention services um, have been, um, it's a sort of a guideline of being able to see, witness somebody use substances in a, a healthcare facility. So be it in a, an acute care hospital or in a, a health unit, it has a, a protocol for nurses or other staff to say, okay, I am willing to observe. This is a person who I don't want to leave the hospital. Um, they need to use substances and they're not getting, you know, it hasn't, what they are requ requiring hasn't been prescribed and they need this to actually keep them in that in the hospital where they may be on IV antibiotics or whatever. So that's something else that's been introduced as well. So it's like an overdose prevention service, which means you're being observed when you're using substances that you've got from um, elsewhere, um, but to actually have that within the acute care setting to mm. stop people from leaving against medical advice, because we know that 
you know, things deteriorate and then somebody may come back or if they don't come back, you know, they may be really, really ill. That's fascinating. I, uh, it's heartwarming to hear of, of the progress that's being made. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I feel lucky to be obviously living uh, one in Canada, but in, in British Columbia, where, where we, we know for many years, we have been the progressive, we've been progressive in many areas um, around um, drug use, but also, you know, around HIV and, and treatment and acceptance of other communities and that kind of thing. And, and I'm, I know one of my um, hopes is that pe some people in other areas and jurisdictions who listen to us will will hear some of the things that we do and realize that these, these sorts of things can be done and, and our, our whole society has not devolved and, and our, you know, it's all the rumors you hear about, uh, about if you, if you give them drugs, they'll just want more drugs and like all those, all those fear mongering, and, you know, every, everything you've spoken of today is truth, obviously. Um, and, and we do that here. And we live in a pretty good place, and so I'm I'm hoping that through some of the the stuff you've shared with us today, that some people in other areas of the world will hear it and and maybe be that that person who goes, hold on, maybe there's a better way to do this, and mm -hmm. and you don't need to change a whole country. Maybe you just change a department's your emergency department's approach to this population, and that starts. So I know a lot of the take home naloxone programs sort of had genesis in in a you know, single emergency department going, I want to do this. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and it, you know, has turned into some of these larger scale things. So um, yeah, I think that was. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's very true that what you're saying is that we need champions. And I think we saw that with um, take home the rock zone in, in Kamloops. It, in there were champions there that moved it forward. And then people thought, Oh, well, maybe it's not that hard. Maybe it's not that much of a burden. Maybe we can move that forward and bit by bit. Um, and then actually with take home naloxone in the emergency departments, that was uh, mandated by the provincial health officer back in, I think it was 2016 probably, um, that all emergency departments would make sure that take home naloxone is available. And I, I love that, and, and you referenced Kamloops where, where I worked at the time. Um, oh, right. <laughs> and, and I'm good friends with, with some of the people who kind of had that idea. And, and that is, a, it's, it was an idea and we can do this. Yeah. And, and that, that's a, not a community that typically has the reputation of being, let's, let's be progressive in this way. Um, and so th that was progressive and, and, uh, and it has turned into such a large scale result. And that was, you know, a few people with an idea. And so mm -hmm. um, I, I love things like that, that one are emergency department led, but are also just an idea someone had and they, they were uh, relentless in their resolve to, to move it forward. And, and here we are now, uh, many years later with, with what we have. So, yeah. I think that one of the things is a, I'm a bit of a Pollyanna and I, I do believe a that, yeah, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit of a Pollyanna, but I do think that crises force us sometimes to do, to look at where we failed and perhaps be much more innovative in saying, let's push this forward faster because this, this cannot be happening. And we can't, we can't be thinking about this because the crisis is happening now. So we got to change the way we do things right this very second. 
And I think I read something recently where it talked about how any, any kind of change or anything that you're pushing forward always feels a bit like peaks and then you hit a plateau. And it's a bit frustrating to be in the plateau, but if you think about it as a way station so that you can rest up before you hit that next peak, I think that that's a pretty nice way of looking at it. So every time I get frustrated, like, oh, we're not changing things. I think to myself, no, this is just a way station. This is for us to all regroup, get our energy back so that we can take it up to the next level. And I feel like we're there. I think that things, having this epidemic of a, of a drug overdose situation wrapped in a pandemic, I'm hoping is going to be, there's going to be an impetus to say, there's gotta be a better way because we're what we're doing isn't working and we gotta figure this out um, as we move forward. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the other thing is that on that plateau, we have to be making sure we're evaluating anything that we're implementing. Yeah. Um, you know, as Landon said, in, in BC, we're often some of the first who are initiating some of these novel ideas that perhaps people are, you know, are aghast that are being considered. But, you know, we implement them, but we really have to make sure that we are evaluating and showing yeah. that they are effective, that they are not doing harm, um, because I think, you know, and that they are doing good. So it, it does give us that that time to, to make sure we're collecting the information. And it, yeah. it can be really quite hard to collect sufficient information to have before and after and show what a difference it makes. Yeah. Um, but you know, having the voices of people with lived experience can really enrich that because we hear what it means to them yeah. and how it's changed people's situations. And, when we hear folks who are anti-harm reduction or anti some of the um, initiatives that may be brought into place, we often hear individual stories. We don't hear that big picture. Um, yeah. It's really, I know an occasion where something happened to an individual, but that doesn't mean that that's the reality of the world. It's the reality of that individual. So. Yeah. We need to evaluate on a big picture, but we also need those stories because those stories can actually make a difference to people's minds to actually hear how it's affected individuals. I love that you do that though, Jane. I love that because I think whenever you're doing an evaluation, having that lived experience of people that are actually having to live with whatever process that you're putting in place is so helpful, but it's also helpful to have people who are negative about it because I think it illuminates a corner that perhaps we didn't, we didn't think about, oh gosh, that might be an issue. Maybe we need to address that in the next mm -hmm. ramification of what we do. But having people with the lived experience, I think is so powerful in the way that we're doing things because then you're not doing it in a silo thinking, well, I know best how to help this person instead of saying, what do you need? And it goes back to what you spoke about is meeting the person where they are. What do you need from us right now yep. and what works for you and what doesn't work because if we haven't lived that experience all you're doing is trying to figure it out from an academic perspective instead of saying tell me tell me what your story is and how how what are your barriers what are your challenges how can we meet you where you are 
Yeah, it, it's a reality check. It takes you out of your ivory tower of research or what you may be doing yeah. into this is people's lives. And it, it's such a privilege to, to talk to people, to, for people to share their experiences and just to see how a community comes together um, that is so supportive of each other. And I think it's, you know, again, that's often not, not seen. Um, and the other thing that I find, um, I, I run a, a committee, it's called the Drug Overdose Alert Partnership or DOPE. Um, and we have people with lived experience, but we also have enforcement, we have health, we have coroners, we have the ambulance. And when we look at the numbers and information that's going on, to actually get different people's perspectives, it helps you understand why others may respond in a certain way um, and it gives that opportunity to come to a common understanding um, between the different organizations or the different disciplines because we all see things differently and you know we'll see a number about something and everybody will have a different interpretation so it's it's really important to listen to others and what their perspectives are so that you can move forward and hopefully find a common uh, way of moving forward that is positive and makes a difference. Well, thank you. On that note, <laughs> I, I, yeah, uh, I think I, yeah, as as per usual, Monique and I's brains explode, and uh, we have guests <laughs> on, and uh, yeah, I have a lot to think about. Uh, I, I, I don't even have final thoughts because my brain is running a million miles an hour. Um, so I'm going to let you get the final words, uh, Minnie, and then turn it over to Dr. Buxton to share her final thoughts. Well, I want to thank you very much, Jane, because I think it's so motivating to us to know that there are people out there who are doing the work so that when we are doing our work, we can do it better and we can serve people better. So we really do appreciate all the things that you are doing out in the community, because I do think it helps us to better appreciate and understand and have the tools we need in order to care for patients um, where we are in our emergency department. So thank you so much for your time. And we are going to let you have the last word. Um, what would you like to say? What would you like to leave us with um, about this whole situation? I, I think, uh, as is come across, so really just thank you for this opportunity. Um, as you can tell, I can talk about any of my work at, uh, at length um, because I do feel passionate about it and i especially passionate about involving and engaging people with lived experience. Um, and I just think that um, I work with a number of folks from the emergency departments, whether it's around take-home naloxone and dosing and, and those kind of things. And it's always a pleasure to, to work with people who are at that coalface because it helps me understand what I need to do, what I need to look into next, how can we work together? So I think my final words are, let's keep collaborating. Um, but even though you may feel really busy and overwhelmed. Um, work is uh, appreciated, just uh, being compassionate, just asking people what they need can make that difference. And it just gives you time to perhaps think. 
um, and then work with your colleagues, uh, support each other, um, because I think it's a, it's a very difficult time um, and we don't always know when people are stressed and what's stressing people outside of work, especially with COVID. So, you know, I think our, the messaging that we hear from our provincial officer of being kind um, is really important. And for me, it's being compassionate because sometimes you look at comments in the press or comments on Twitter and things and think, oh my goodness. Um, but, you know, emergency department nurses are kind, compassionate, but overworked at times, but just, you know, be good to yourself. Mm -hmm. That's what she always says, isn't it? Be calm, be safe, be kind. <laughs> Thank you very much. And we will uh, talk to all of you guys, I guess, next month. Next Take month. Take care. Thank you. Bye. 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 For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.